Sean, thank you for being here. I'm so happy to be um, here. Thanks for inviting me. I spoke to you for the first time a few months ago, and I'll tell you this here for the first time. You did affect my life. Uh, I won't say change my life completely, but you affected my life. You've um, introduced me to your prism of thought about certain things and just led me to investigate for myself down different paths, rabbit holes, whatever you want to call it. Um, so I wanted to speak to you, invite you here, share those insights, share that inform this information with um, our listeners, our followers, which are therapists from really all over the world, manual therapists, massage therapists, physiotherapists, that are maybe they are exposed to different types of uh, people, injuries, athletes, um, but through their prism of thought. So here we want to get your prism of thought. So I'll start with, if it's okay, by guiding you. Uh, you um, told me you hate traveling. Why? So first off, it's a privilege to be here. I really appreciate you bringing me out. I don't travel to Tel Aviv for everyone. So consider it, maybe it's the cute hair, maybe it's <laughs> the, the impression you gave me as well. And I think that the goal of every educator should be, be able to give that elevator pitch impact because you're going to come across tons of massage therapists, physical therapists, trainers in your life. And some of them you'll remember, some of them you'll forget their name a minute later. So the fact that I met you for maybe an hour and I was able to impact you for, for your life, I really appreciate hearing that because it means whatever my prism of thought, I've never used that wor uh, word before. I appreciate that affected you. So I'm grateful for that. Thank you. So traveling. So traveling. So is it a physical act of traveling? So it's two things. First of all, my general personality type is like go-getter. So I'm always doing stuff. So when you're driving, unless you want to get a 1500 shekel ticket, you can't really do other stuff, right? So you're driving and you're sitting and maybe you're listening to a podcast, maybe you're listening to music, maybe you're taking a phone call. In fact, most of my traveling, whether it's by public transportation, bus or car, usually turns into an office space. So if it's by car, I'm listening to a podcast or taking client phone calls, consultations, speaking with my athletes, speaking with colleagues. Uh, if it's public transportation, I'm usually, you know, editing work on social media, writing, corresponding with clients, working on my next big project, whatever it may be. But yeah. the actual act of traveling is the sitting that bothers me. I think it bothers me from two angles. Number one, as an athlete and as a coach, I try to lead by example. And I'm always trying to do what I call ground sitting, which means I'll rarely ever sit in the structured society, the structured chair that society gave us. I'm always either sitting on the floor Lying on, my, lying on my tummy, on my knees, working at a standing desk. I'm always doing all sorts of alternative methods of light, low-intensity movement throughout the day because I believe that's what we evolved to do. We didn't really evolve to sit for eight hours in a chair. So the sitting really bothers me. And I just get antsy, meaning even if I wasn't this guy trying to biohack my life and trying to stay active throughout the day, I don't enjoy sitting. So even when I drive, you'll find my left leg, you know, Nice and here, Moving. you'll find my left leg twitching, you'll find me like reaching and trying to get overhead. So I'm basically trying to sneak in a mobility session while driving. Yeah, every time I drive, um, if it's more than 20 minutes, something does not feel right. Whether it's my hip, my back, something is not okay. Uh, so I understand, so I do appreciate it. And I have you sitting here with me. So Ooh. thank you very much for that. And you were saying, I'll take you to your podcast for a second. Um, you're used to uh, doing this sitting, sitting, but in an, inside an ice tub. Correct. So I have the Cold Feet Podcast. Thank you for the cameo there. We're usually two people kind of ground sitting slash squatting in the ice bath. And because you're cold, you're constantly moving. So that's an added bonus of being in a cold tub. And even in the sauna, I'll go from squatting to sitting to lying to standing. It's difficult for me as a human to stay still, which I'm thankful and grateful in my line of work. I'm usually always moving, but sometimes I have to put on my professional uh, face and do things like this. And I'm, I'm, I'm cool with that. Because the same way that I believe that we evolved to uh, not sit, I believe that we also evolved to do anything. So if I have to sit for an hour or two, that's just part of what my body needs to do at the moment. And an hour or two after that, I can bounce back. Like I'm not going to be stuck in a seated position with tight hips forever if I'm actively doing something about it. Yeah. And how long do you uh, squat sit in the ice tub? So we've had podcast lengths from 10 minutes all the way to 90 minutes. Our wow. longest episode was how to build a perfect tactical athlete, speaking of military, because I believe of serving the army, seeing what went on there, that they're not really giving enough of an emphasis on strength and conditioning and actually building the physical resilience to their soldiers. So I had a colleague of mine who also served in an elite unit, who also works with elite athletes, and we just back and forth for 90 minutes. No hyperthermia. Hyperthermia was episode four. 
<laughs> that was also a tactical episode. It was in a my it was in a natural pool of water outside in December. I spoke with a friend of mine who served in Oketz, which is the K9 unit. Yep. where girls serve as well. And the, the topic was, should women serve in combat? Nice and controversial. And we both got hyperthermia after being 60 minutes in the outdoor pool in this setting, as opposed to my cold plunge. So tell me about hyperthermia. What was the uh, outcome of that? So the recovery. Outcome of, the outcome of that was after we finished the podcast, because we were in this random tub, sorry, random natural pool of water, we still had to hike back home. So that was great. So, so I, what does hyperthermia technically mean? So hyperthermia usually means that your body stops functioning because it's too cold. So it can no longer, you know, basic cognitive function, your brain kind of slows down a bit. For me, I've never taken drugs. I've never taken uh, hallucinogens. Is that the correct term or psychedelics? Yeah. I think I hit it there because as I was hiking back, we still had a two-hour hike back to the car. I felt like I was walking on clouds and I was like, wow, that's what it feels. I don't suggest this to normal people. It just kind of happened because we were getting you know, caught up in the episode and next thing you know, we're very cold. Yeah, so um, speaking of suggesting to normal people, you did mention that you see yourself, what I'm trying to use the term that you use, crazy, weird, one of those. <laughs> so I'm an, special. I'm, an, I'm, an, I'm special. I'm an alien. Do you like my disguise? I love it. So yesterday, one of my colleagues who's a, a, a trainer, she's one of my athletes, she's a lacrosse player, basketball player, uh, flag football player, iron woman, you know, right up my alley. And she said, you're weird. And I said, thanks, you're weird too. So like... I don't think I'm different. I think that all humans were born in a womb of a, of a female, right? We're all the same humans, me and you. It doesn't matter how successful you are, how rich you are, how big you are. I just realized as I interact with more and more people that most people don't live the lifestyle I live. Like, why are you walking barefoot? Or why are you sitting on the ground? Or why are you trying to wear only natural clothing? Because mainstream society does mainstream things. And I'm accepting of that. Like, I don't alienate myself from society. I work with society every day and I don't feel superior to society because I do things. I do my thing. You want to vote that guy? Speaking of voting, you vote that guy, I vote that guy. We can still be friends. Yeah, we don't have to get into politics. Yeah. But um, have you heard of active sitting? These active sitting chairs? Yes, I have. Have so, you tried one out? Yeah, please. I don't have the stool. Like I know you're talking about because I'm like, I'm a biohacker of sorts. Biohacking is like trying to enhance your longevity and performance through various stuff throughout the day beyond the uh, conventional fitness and nutrition, which people think health is. What I do have, though, is many things in my workspace, which is right next, hidden next to my gym or near my home, which allow me to hack in movement. So, for example, I have a standing desk. It's just a basic, like kind of like a DJ stand where I can put my laptop on. So, and I can adjust it. I can, if I want to kneel, I can adjust it to around hip height. If I want to stand, it's at desk height. And then I have this funky chair. Let's say dinner time. So, dinner time, especially in Judaism, is is sorry. Let me rephrase that. Meal time always used to be a time of family and prayer and gratitude. Doesn't matter what religion you are, who you believe in, but like, hey, wife, hey, husband, hey, let's let's enjoy the meal together. Let's say grace. Let's thank God. If you don't believe in God, let's thank the farmers who brought us this wheat to our table. And meals have become this kind of like, let's shovel down McDonald's while watching, while watch, catching up on the latest episode of Game of Thrones. So, even though I'd like to sit on the floor for mealtimes as well, out of respect for the meal to make it a little more elevated and you know elevate the food, elevate the moment, I have this funky chair, which allows me to sit either basically on it in a squat with my legs up or in a, it's hard to explain, but kind of in a semi-kneeling position. So I'm never getting into that classic Titan squat. So if I'm not sitting on the floor or on the beanbag or standing or kneeling or lunging around the beam or some other movement device, then I'm sitting on this kneeling chair. I also rarely sit. So yeah, so I I was um, recently exposed to this um, the idea of active uh, chairs and mm. active sitting and these different products out there that are really trying to promote this and they um, they seem suppressed by mainstream society mm. by our Western society and by these big corporations that have been pushing or the chairs we're sitting on at this moment uh, for so many years and it's uh, the idea of sitting on a chair that requires you to use some of your um, core muscles, some of your muscles that are uh, responsible for your stability. And the idea of sitting on a chair that doesn't have a backrest mm. seems crazy. Foreign, yeah. Very foreign. Um, and almost seems so far away and so unachievable. Um, whereas, again, based on anecdotes, case studies that I've heard, it's just a, um, it's a transition and it's a, uh, it's a process that if you actually invest in for a couple days, a couple weeks, some people a couple months, you really get used to it and you can sit actively 
and comfortably at the same mm. time. Um, so I think that's very interesting. And when I started going through this uh, path of finding out more about active sitting, it seemed to me very parallel to the world of shoes, the idea of barefoot. Um, what do you think? The bike is mine. So <laughs> I want to address the active sitting for a moment and Please. then kind of dive into this whole world of qu questioning the norm, you know, looking at mainstream stuff and saying, wait a minute, just because mainstream and the world is pushing this doesn't necessarily mean that's what's best for me. So when it comes to active chairs, first of all, it's not really about just having the standing desk or just having the uh, desk treadmill set up. It's about what are you doing in your life? So if having that active chair or having that standing desk is part of your greater journey to be the healthiest human that you could, then it's fantastic. If someone is working on an active chair but is still eating you know, junk all day and not really moving and not getting fresh air, not getting sunshine, it's not that magic hack. And that applies to barefoot as well. Just because I wear barefoot shoes, if I'm not training, training, mobilizing, getting outside, spending time with loved ones, spending some time meditating, maybe intermittent fasting, whatever your form of worship is, it's not the magic cure. I think all these things together can make the ideal, happy, holistic human. And diving into that, I think that most fitness professionals, who many of our listeners are, we think of health as very close-minded. We think of health as fitness movement, mobility, training, soft tissue work, gymming, outdoor, calisthenics, CrossFit, sports, whatever it may be, nutrition. And if you're feeling, you know, to put your, push yourself one step further into the world, we think sleep and recovery. But there's so much more, right? We just spoke. Sitting. If I'm training an hour or two a day, but the rest of my life is spent sitting hunched over a computer, that's a problem. While I'm sitting, what am I breathing? While I'm breathing, what... Uh, Toxins in the air, like mold, for example, which is prevalent around uh, where I live in Akhlot, in Jerusalem, or in Tel Aviv. What toxins is my body being exposed to? Are any toxins being released from my clothes if they're made from uh, polyester or plastic? What um, uh, temperatures am I being exposed to? Am I always working in a temperature-regulated office, which is at the perfect temperature that my body needs? Or is my body exposing itself to extreme stimulus, like cold water or really, really hot temperatures? Now, in the modern world, we replace those with a cold plunge in a sauna. But let's go a few hundred years back or a few thousand years back. These things didn't exist. That's just because the, the, the forager, the native warrior to his land had to swim in the river in the winter to catch the fish or to cross it. And they also had to expose themselves in the midday sun to forage the berries. So all these biohacks that we're doing, like back to the example of the active chair, it's just going back to a day and age when active chairs didn't exist because if we sat, we were sitting on the ground. So yeah. every tool that we use to hack our life is just, it's not so much in, 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 it's not so much enhancing the quality of our life magically. It's replacing the more harmful object that can be harming our life, such as sitting on the couch too long, such as sitting on the chair too long. Yeah. So maybe the, the active chair is not ideal, but it's a huge step Correct. forward or Correct. a better situation to be in than sitting in Correct. a normal chair, what we know of as. Um, so maybe same with shoes. So because of you and to respect you, and I, I've, uh, I'm wearing my uh, first ever pair of barefoot shoes. I don't know if you noticed. I did notice. Um, in fact, the first... The second I saw you, I noticed your new Viva Barefoot shoes. So congratulations. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, and I've been wearing them now for a couple of months. Um, every opportunity I have to walk in them, I walk in them. Uh, that's as far as I have gone at this moment in my uh, process of walking barefoot. Um, but tell me about it. What what um, initiated this within you? When did mm. Were you exposed to this idea? Mm. Because, sorry, but you, you grew up in the US, right? Correct. And I'm assuming you, most of your life, I'm assuming you wore Nike shoes? I wore conventional shoes, Adidas, Nike. Uh, you know, on the Sabbath, I would wear just random dress shoes, whatever I got. I never thought about it until the age of, until around seven years ago. And I came across Vibram Five Fingers. Uh, I think that there's three types of barefoot shoe wearers. There's the people who like, you know, whatever, I wear my shoes, I hang out. Sometimes I wear Nike, sometimes I wear Vivo Barefoot, sometimes I play barefoot, sometimes I don't. Then there's people who are exploring their wardrobe. So they'll have a barefoot hiking shoe and a barefoot sandal and a barefoot shoe. And, but they'll still wear conventional uh, shoes sometimes. Whereas then there's people like me who are gunko. Like you will never see me wearing a regular shoe unless it's for demonstrative purposes. So if I'm making like an Instagram post or giving a corporate workshop, 
or, or giving an athletic workshop teaching people how the foot how the foot works and how the the shoe affects your foot so I think seven, eight years ago, I got my first pair of Vibram Five Fingers, which are the notorious toe shoes, which there was a lawsuit against them because people didn't transition properly. Let's go back to active chair. Because my core starts hurting or my hip starts hurting because I started sitting on an active chair, I can't sue the chair company. I have to get stronger if I just spent 20 years of regular sitting, right? So that's what's kind of happened with Vibram. People win on running their regular 10, 15, 20 kilometer runs. And then they sued Vibram saying their shoe, they claim that their shoes have health benefits. Their shoes don't have magic health benefits. Their shoes allow your foot to function properly. If I just spend 20 years weakening my foot, then obviously I can't go to my 20K. I have to re-strengthen my foot and it may take years to get back to it specifically for runners. That was when I started the journey. About four years ago, I, I mentioned before, I'm a strength and conditioning coach. I was playing for a tackle football team and also working with them. And I wore cleats that were half a size too small on me. And I wore like an insole in them, not a supportive insole, but like not a flat. It was a very rigid, thick insole that was supposed to like, you know, be enhance your performance and, you know, whatever it is. Yep. Give a little carbon, uh, carbon uh, return to it. And the eight months right before I began that football season, I did everything possible. I was training from a strength and conditioning perspective at the highest level I could. So four strength and power days a week, mobility every day, heat and sauna, uh, uh, cold and heat when necessary, speed and agility twice a week, practicing. And I went from being a okay tackle football player to a really, really good football player. And people were like, whoa. Because people don't, athletes, especially in the, in the semi-professional world, I'm not talking about the NFL level, they don't make transformations, right? Either you're a good player and you get a little bit better or you're okay. And in one year, I transformed. But that one year, in the first game, I sprained my ankle. The next game, I broke my rib. The next game, I tore my LCL. And I was still playing because that was just the mentality. And it didn't make sense to me. I said, how is it possible that I just spent eight months training at the highest level possible, eating enough, fueling, recovering, and I'm still getting injured? So I looked at my feet for the first time. I questioned them. Keep in mind, I already had vibrant five fingers. And I was already like, you know, here and there wearing them. But I wasn't. I wasn't fully into the cult, as they would say, not that it's a cult. My feet were smushed together. My pinky toe from the cleat, cleats are notoriously narrow. Yeah. My pinky toe was smushed in, my, my, my big toe was smushed in, my calf was hurting me, I sprained my ankle, my LCL, right, the, the uh, ligament by the knee was torn, and it just made sense to me. And the second I took them off, I started having relief. And that's when I did this seminar called the Foot Collective Seminar, and it just all made sense to me. And then I realized that even though the barefoot shoe world is, at the end of the day, shoes are apparel, correct? They're footwear, the things we wear. For me, it was never about that. It was about performance. I said, whoa, what if I can bring this knowledge of barefoot performance to my athletes? What if my athletes' feet aren't hurting them when they train? What if, and this is that Vivo Barefoot did the studies, what if training my feet enhances my athletic performance? Disclaimer, like I said before, back to active chair, being barefoot slash just wearing barefoot shoes is not the whole equation. But I believe for many, it's the missing link because many people like you and me have had foot pain for many years or constantly spraining their ankles or unexplained something happening, whether it's pain, whether it's an injury, and they can't explain why it's happening. Sometimes just switching to that zero drop flexible shoe makes all the difference. So that's when I went gung-ho and I, we, by my athlete, professional athletes who compete for Israel, we're warming up in the field barefoot. We're spending as much time barefoot as possible. Those who would like to, I'm not there to convince them. If they'd like to in their day-to-day, -day, they, they wear minimalist footwear. Yeah. And I've seen so much success stories, like hands-on case studies in front of my eyes. Oh, their feet aren't hurting them anymore. They're running better. When does it go wrong with barefoot? So we brought up the case before. When I give my corporate workshops, I say this as well. The one exception that you want to be wary about transitioning too quickly is runners. Because runners are doing a rep repetitive stride again and again for distance, specifically endurance runners. So if I take a guy who runs 30 kilometers per run or whatever it is, long distance, and then goes from his cushioned heel strike all the way to a uncushioned forefoot strike or continuous heel striking, his feet and his body are not ready to absorb that impact of the shoes, of the, sorry, of the force. So he has to, he or she has to transition slowly. We'll do one run with the regular shoes, 
one run barefoot on a soft surface like grass and run one one run with barefoot shoes or barefoot. And then we'll kind of transition to there. So runners have to have the longest progression to transition correctly. But I would say any day-to-day people, if you're having foot pain, if you're having calf pain, if you're having repetitive ankle sprains, if you have unexplained back pain, try minimalist footwear. Day-to-day. Don't run with it. Yep. You can train with it. Don't do any sort of jumping, running, impact stuff. Just switch out your regular shoes. And in your personal experience, um, for day-to-day people, you haven't experienced uh, someone that has uh, had it go wrong? I have not. In fact, it's all about what your lifestyle is. So if you're a regular dude and you're just kind of walking out and about, a lot of times your feet will hurt. Of course they're hurting because yeah. your feet aren't ready for it yet. So that's where whenever I uh, tell someone to uh, buy a barefoot shoe, I provide them with resources. Here's the exercise you're doing to strengthen your arch. Here's how to release it with lacrosse ball, to release the fascia. Here's how to strengthen your toes. Meaning it's a journey like anything in life. I'm a runner, not 30 kilometers, but I run. And I walked into uh, the Vivo store uh, in London mm. and I asked to for the sales lady to direct me to their running shoe. Mm-hmm. And she did. Um, and I asked her to get me a pair. And she asked my size. Um, And then after asking my size, she looked at me. She scanned my body. And she said, I don't recommend you buy these. Go home, do some research, see if you're ready to buy these shoes, and then come back. I said, I'm size 44 and a half. Can I please have my shoes? Uh, Because I have done the research. But kudos to, um, to Vivo for that because... That was, for me at least, a first-time experience um, hearing that from a uh, salesperson and an eye-opening one, and she's absolutely right um, because you mentioned that, especially for runners, your body is not ready for or not equipped to deal with that heel strike, that force that's being shot up to your body with every stride you take. Is there also an element, though, of... Forget not being equipped or ready for it, but actually changing the biomechanics of the way you're running. Absolutely. I'm wowed by that story. And I think that ties in that barefoot shoe companies are not selling you a shoe. They're selling you a concept. They're selling you a health hack and a good barefoot shoe company like Vivo Barefoot, which is leading in the world in case studies and research into barefoot running and barefoot lifestyle and barefoot athleticism they're trying to actually help you. They're not just trying to sell you a product and saying, figure it out yourself. So from a biomechanical perspective, cushion shoes, which by the way, were invented in the 90s, were both, that's a very recent invention. Yeah. Before then, most shoes were like van style, flat sold. Even uh, runners back then were running in flat style sneakers. Nike and other large companies started coming out with research, perhaps biased, that was saying that if I can have a very, very thick cushion on my sneaker, it will allow me to absorb force better and prevent injury. Unfortunately, the running injuries have just kept them going up. But the companies out there, I'll stop naming companies, so not, you know, shame anything, just kept them getting thicker. If you walk into any conventional shoe store, you will see marshmallows with some fabric on top of them. So what the marshmallow does is it allows you to land on, on your heel. Now, when you, I know we're in a, a pr- smaller space. I can't really get a live demo going on, but try to envision yourself running. In fact, if you're listening, just stand up and start running. If you're wearing shoes, especially if you're used to being in conventional footwear, your body will automatically land on the heel. And if you land the heel, not only is the jarring force of the, of the ground impact jarring into your bone, which goes right up your body, but you're also landing in a completely locked position. So your knee is locked. Locked joints are not a great way to produce force. In fact, when we teach landing mechanics to our athletes, if you're jumping and landing, you land in a semi-squat position like anything you do. In addition to that, because of the jarring force, there's no shock absorber. So the knees, the hips, slash spine, slash all the way upstream takes all the force. If you take off your shoes, even if you're not an experienced barefooter, if that's a real term, you will notice how you immediately start landing on your forefoot because it's very uncomfortable to land in your heel when there's nothing cushioning there. So even if you're in 
conventional footwear, it's still more ideal to forfeit strike because A, the arch is a, is like a spring, like a pogo stick, which absorbs the initial force. The knee is now in a bent position, which transfers your hip much more efficiently, and your body can uh, produce and return force more efficiently. In fact, there were studies on runners, nothing to do with the barefoot world, that forefoot strikers are more efficient runners because they're using the arch of the foot for the recoil effect, the springiness to return running and uh, sorry to, to keep up the repetitive maintain stride maintain momentum exactly yeah. and runners are always trying to improve running efficiency so what if i can tell you that minimalist running if transitioned correctly is actually going to improve your running efficiency in the long term the problem being most athletes especially in the competitive world don't care about long term they care about the gold medal in the next olympics so if i say to them hey man i want you to spend 10 years of your life so you can play in a minimalist cleat so you won't harm your feet and when you're 80 years old you'll be strong and healthy i'll be like Dude, Olympics is in 2028. By the way, I'll be there. That's the plan. Olympics <laughs> is in 2028. All I care about is the podium. I don't care about 20 years of life. In fact, most athletes' feet, if you've ever seen LeBron James' feet, are not healthy. But that's not their goal. Their goal is performance and longevity before health. And we're looking at the greater picture of health. But yes, absolutely, there's a, a, a single focused difference in biomechanics. If you look at a, a, a cushion sneaker runner, specifically a heel striker versus a forefoot striker. For the day-to-day -day person, even an athlete, um, is are there cases where they do require some marshmallow? I'm going to start using that term. It's a good term. It's a good term. So some arch, some support to now, the foot. Now we're yeah. going to go a little bit into the what is a minimalist shoe, so we'll understand it better. A minimalist shoe is a shoe that allows the foot to optimize its function, which means that the shoe is not supporting the foot in any way. It's just allowing the foot to be the foot. Make sense? Makes sense Sweet. to me. Within those characteristics, there's different aspects which can change. So first we have to look, what is a conventional shoe doing for the foot? So we can look at a men's dress shoe or a woman's heel shoe, and it's obvious. When you go to a wedding, the woman's like, oh, my feet hurt, right, from the heel. And they all take them off after exactly, 20 minutes. Exactly, because their feet hurt, which everyone knows. You don't have to be uh, in this podcast or be a rocket scientist to tell someone your heels are bad for you. Because it's obvious. It's completely changing your biomechanics and the way your body's moving and standing. But even regular shoes, men's dress shoes, sneakers have a slight heel. This is known in the barefoot world as a drop or an elevated heel. The drop is the angle from the top of the shoe to the bottom of the shoe. So even a one millimeter drop is slightly changing the way I'm on the floor, which is A, shortening my Achilles tendon and my calf slightly, which is not bad. If I spend the rest of the time barefoot, it, you know, my body will get used to it. But if I'm always in a contracted state, I'll lose range of motion in my ankle, right? Yeah. That's the run. So the drop we want to eliminate, which means there's shoes out there like Ultra and uh, a splay and other companies which didn't go the minimalist, minimalist route. They went the route of a regular sneaker, specifically Ultra, they're known for this, but they have a, a, a no elevated heel. So that you can have a marshmallow style, but no elevated heel. So that's the most important thing to eliminate. So even people who don't want to go on the barefoot shoe train, they don't want to run, they don't want ground feel, they have injuries, they're old, whatever it is, eliminate the drop from your shoe because that's the most harmful. The second thing that's most harmful is the minimal, the, the narrow toe box. Now, when we walk, run, squat, jump, stand up from a chair, we need to, in order for max, for optimal stability to stand on one leg, we need to be able to press our big toe, our pinky toe, and heel into the floor. That's called a tripod foot. That's what's going to optimize stability when squatting, jumping, landing, and even when running or sprinting. Because in running or sprinting, my big toe is responsible for a very large portion of my ability to run my gait and extend my foot. So my big toe is pressing into the floor. I can really produce force into the calf, into the shin, into the quad, into the hamstring. If my big toe smushed in, my other toes are going to have the responsibility instead, which is not the way my biomechanics are supposed to be. If my big toe has that good splay, the force is going to be distributed like it is. A narrow toe box will not only prevent your foot from having that tripod foot and functioning properly, but actually if performing in a narrow toe box shoe, it's long-term damaging the big toe because the big toe gets used to not being so used. And then when you take off the shoe, you have a bunion. Now, people say bunions are genetic. They're not. I'm going to dispel the myth for you. Maybe 1% cases. Have you ever seen a baby with a bunion? I have not. Exactly. I haven't either. And I see lots of babies. I've seen lots of youth. Bunions start at the age of 5, 10, when they start wearing shoes, especially athletes because cleats are notoriously narrow. So if I can eliminate the heel, right, the drop, and the narrow toe box, I'm good. You got the stamp of approval. It may not be called a true minimalist shoe, 
but you'll be still keeping that marshmallow style shoe, eliminating the negative aspects. Now, there's some other aspects that we want to address, like arch support, which is also a myth. Babies' feet are flat when they're born. And what happens at three years old? They take them to the doctor, orthopedist, podiatrist, whatever it is, and they give them an insole. Now, if my, ba- if my baby's hand is small, right? I don't have a kid. I only have Charlie the dog. And I say, his hand's not growing. So the doctor will be like, oh, you have to immobilize the hand so it keeps on growing. Does that make any sense to you? It does not. does not, right? So his foot is flat because his arch didn't develop yet. In fact, if you let him spend time, him or her as much time barefoot as possible, the arch will strengthen on itself. Not only that, but if you put heavy shoes on your kid's feet, you're not only preventing his ability, his or her ability of his foot to get stronger, but you're also giving him heavy objects on his feet. This kid weighs 10, 20, 30 kilo. And you're putting objects that we have in his feet. And you'll see how kids run with shoes, how heavy they are and how clunky they are and how much lighter they run when they wear light shoes. So it's very important that you do not, especially for kids in developing, do not give them arch support. Do not put an insole in the shoe. The shoe should be flat with zero arch support. Another element is the sole. And this is where it gets kind of differentiating. Vivo barefoot soles can be somewhere between four millimeters to 10 millimeters, depending on the model, because the hiking ones have more lugs to give better traction. The sole is going to defer between person to person. An experienced barefooter like myself can hike hundreds of kilometers barefoot or with a very, very thin sole. Someone who's newer to the barefoot world will have a harder time wearing such a thin sole because their feet are not strong enough to handle not only the, the, the force of constantly pushing your foot into the ground, walking, running, hiking, but also the ground feel. You'll be stepping on rocks and the fascias of your feet are not used to smushing themselves onto hard objects like rocks and and other bumpy surface terrains. So beginner barefooters shouldn't start with a marshmallow shoe, but they should start with a relatively thicker sole, which is, by the way, why all Vivo shoes come with an insole. Start with the insole, take it out. The insole's adding another two, three millimeters of thickness to help you transition on your journey. Then when you take the insole out, you suddenly have more ground feel. You, like, advance the step in the barefoot world. And this Sole thickness can be from two, three millimeters, like a Vibram five-finger shoe, the toe shoes, all the way to 10, 15, and even 20 with ultra-running shoes. So that's the sole. Uh, two other char- characteristics that we like is uh, uh, lightweight, right? We don't want something heavy, especially with babies. They're going to be picking up extremely heavy shoes in their feet. We want something as light as possible. We want something flexible and bendy because that that's what the foot does. And lastly, we want something firmly attached to the foot because the first thing that people respond is a flip-flop, right? Flip-flops thin, zero drop. If it's not firmly attached to the foot, it's going to affect your gait as well. Your heel is going to be repetitively stamming into the floor, and your toes are going to be scrunching too hard to keep the flip-flop attached to your foot. So we said, to to summarize, heel and wide toe box. Eliminate the heel. Eliminate narrow toe box. Most important. The drop is individual. Keep it lightweight. Keep it flexible. Flexible is going to defer between shoe to shoe. And the closer it has all these traits, it's going to be closer to allowing your foot to function as best as possible. So we have a uh, spectrum here. Of minimalist shoes. So when people think about potentially trying this to to dabble with this world of uh, barefoot, um, there's no need to go all out and to damage yourself because you can find products that will slowly, slowly help you you with the transition. Um, Okay, so in addition to the um, we spoke about the transition of maybe taking it slow, maybe try running one time with your conventional shoe, one time with your barefoot shoe. We spoke about different um, levels in the spectrum of marshmallow, arch support, flexibility, zero drop, etc. Um, where does exercise come in mm. or specific exercises for the feet mm. come in? Fantastic. So it's funny you're asking this because this is something that I'm extremely passionate about. I put up on our Instagram once, twice a week, barefoot education. So the two things that are the most powerful tools, in addition to strength training, mobility, is taking any sort of hard ball. That could be a baseball, softball, golf ball, a cross ball, even like a wooden stick that rolls, even a a water bottle, and it's rolling out your foot on it. Go front to front, go side to side, take some deep breaths, really press, try to even stand on the ball or object. And what you're doing is twofold. A, you're releasing the fascia of your feet. So all the tension that builds up there, you're getting it supple and soft. So any pain that hurts, a lot of times it can be uh, released by rolling out your feet on the ball. Simple task. I could brush my teeth. I could be in a podcast while rolling out my ball simultaneously as long as my podcast host lets. Maybe I'm doing it right now. <laughs> and 
It also gets my foot used to texture. We spoke before about how if I have a very thin sole, I suddenly step on the rock, my body's like, eh, this is not so, so is that something fun. your your foot actually gets used to? Yes, it I does. Was, I was recently on a vac- a beach vacation, mm. and the the water was absolutely beautiful. The sand was incredible. In between the incredible sand and the beautiful water were lots of rocks and stones. Mm. So you had to walk for about maybe 10 meters of stones mm. in order to get to, into this beautiful um, body of water. So people like myself and the friends that I, w- that I was with, it took us way too long to get past that uh, 10 meters of stones. So much so that after the first couple times of experiencing that pain, we started wearing our flip-flops mm. um, just for those 10 meters. And then once we get into the beautiful body of water, take the flip-flops off and hold them in our hands mm. and try and enjoy the water while holding the flip-flops in one hand. At the same time, local kids that are from that area were running on the rocks. So if one of their soccer balls, footballs, flew onto the rocks, they, I saw them sprint and not even hesitate for one second. So to my original question, is that something you get used to? Yes. Now we're speaking about the superpower of being a barefooter. So when you roll out your feet every day, you're not only releasing the fascia, you're getting your body used to texture exposure. And part of the exercises we give to beginner barefooters, facility with athletes I work at, is every day when you go out, you go to the park, you don't have to go barefoot. Don't, don't do anything extreme. Take your shoes off. Expose yourself to grass. See how it feels. Expose yourself to concrete. Ooh, a little more difficult, right? Expose yourself to the rock bed. Ooh, it's difficult. But as you roll your feet out every day on a hard surface, your tissues start adapting to terrain. And this is very relevant for barefoot runners, right? They're going to step on rocks. In fact, if you go trail running, you will be slower. You will be more cautious. Yep. But you'll be stepping on rocks, thorns, weird, bumpy terrains, and your body adapts to the terrain around it and your foot learns how to be more resilient. You'll still be slower than a cushioned runner, obviously, because they have something that's not their body, that doesn't have nerves to feel it, but you'll be much more aware because when you step on the rock, your knee and hip, oh, let me, I have to bend a little bit more and I have to breathe a certain way, (sighs) release the air as I run. So you'll actually become a much more aware runner as you feel the ground beneath you, which is, how you won't sprain your ankle sprains happen when we lose our proprioception. We lose our ability to feel the ground. So I step on a big rock and my body, instead of feeling that there's a big rock, oh, I have to adapt to it. It kind of like, oh, can't do that. And I just sprained my ankle. Whereas if I understand that there's a sharp object there, I kind of, you know, bend. So I was in soccer park near my house a few weeks ago and I was playing frisbee and I stepped on something really sharp and I was like fell down screaming in pain. And it turned out a bee, I stepped on a bee. And it stung me and I told the bee like, hey, I'm a barefooter. You're, you're not supposed to be able to penetrate my skin. But at the end, it's a joke, obviously. I mean, I really stepped on a bee. It wasn't so nice. But you, I can step on terrains easily like those kids. What's good about those kids is that they probably barely wear shoes. So they never even expose their feet to this bad uh, nerve blocking shoe. But people like us, in order to regain our proprioception, foot function, and actually feel what's going on in our feet, we're going to have to spend a few years or a few months transitioning off regular shoes and either spending time barefoot or wearing barefoot shoes so we can relearn what it is to feel the ground beneath us. One thing I did notice, and you touched on it here, um, walking motion, even running, can become, usually is, I think, with most people, an autonomous action. Um, so once you start walking, you don't really think about your next step, right? You just walk. When I try and walk barefoot, now I'm not with barefoot my barefoot. or with barefoot shoes? So completely barefoot. Completely barefoot. Now, um, again, a few minutes here and there. Now I'm cautious. I'm aware of every step I take. So I'm actually involved in this action of walking. And then I kind of want to pause my music. I kind of want to take my headphones out because I'm, I actually have to focus here. Um, so some people will tell you, why are you wasting time now? It can be an autonomous movement and you can just walk. I think that when I finish walking for 10 minutes barefoot and I've engaged in it and I was aware of every step that I took, actually I can say I enjoyed walking more. 
Did you feel the same way when you started? Absolutely. In fact, my barefoot journey didn't just start a enhanced athletic performance journey for me. It enhanced a greater connection to the world around me. So there's a concept of grounding, which I'm sure you're familiar with, which is basically connecting our feet to the earth. I won't dive into the science right now. But if you can feel the ground beneath you, you're super aware of what's going on. You feel the texture. You feel the terrain. And for some people, it can be spiritual. And I find that barefoot walking is such a nice hack because you're not just getting movement. You're feeling the ground beneath you. So you're getting sunshine. You're getting fresh air. And you're getting a free massage for your feet if you're walking on rocks or any sort of texture. And same, same. I don't want to listen to music. I don't want to be on my phone. I just want to feel. And it's made me so much more present with earth. And I know I sound like a tree hugger. I love, I love hugging trees. <laughs> I love hugging trees. I, I like grounding. But this journey started the more holistic me. Before this, before this barefoot journey, I was just, you know, lifting, training, nutrition, you know, regular guy. It started this journey where I'm wearing, you know, grounding sandals and wearing, you know, pants that are only made out of cotton. Like it totally launched this more holistic, connected, spiritual self. And I try to bring this message to my athletes as well. Tree hugging. So I'm a, I'm, uh, I want to believe that most people in your life now, um, uh, they know you yes. and know what to expect, number one. But do people question you? Do they think, oh, come on, Sean. So when I kiss the tree, people are like, what's going on, man? But then it's like, <laughs> wow, this tree is so cool, right? So... Being a Leo type, you know, being this fiery personality, I tend to be a leader. So it's not so much do they question me, I think, as they learn from me. Oh, wow, this guy knows stuff. But at the same time, I'm pretty selective about who I spend time with. You know what I mean? Like, obviously, I play frisbee, rugby, football, flag football, tennis every week with friends. No one's, you know, getting deep into my personal life. But the people who know me personally are pupils of mine. Meaning, even if they're not intentionally, like, oh, yeah, there's something about this barefoot thing. I would say I've converted 70% of my friends to barefoot lifestyle, cold exposure, heat exposure, training, mobility, movement, just because that's my nature as a leader. If someone questions me, that's okay. I'll usually have an answer for them. If I don't, we can still be friends. I get questioned, and I'm, yeah. um, I'm only scratching the surface, and I get questioned all the time. Um, I think it's important. Uh, I have clients, so like a lot of my, I'm an educator. So when I train someone, whether it's in the gym or on the field, I don't just say, do this, you'll get better. I explain when we full get our leg to triple extension and strike with the forefoot, you're getting better at running. And my athletes actually tease me, Sean, stop talking. We got to train, you know what I mean? But <laughs> clients are constantly asking me questions and I've never failed to come up with an answer. Meaning when a client asks me or an athlete asks me a question, I'm happy because it's challenging my understanding of the human body. And every time I get off a conversation with a client, even if it's a complex one, the lumbar paradox and how the bicep flex and rotation, it challenges me. Do I really know my stuff or am I just, you know, So does it make you sometimes that question challenges you? Does it make you, let me get back to you? You go home, you test it on yourself, you research. In fact, every injury I get, I learned so much from it, not just for me, but for my athletes. Hey, if I tore my infospinatus, one of the rotator cuff muscles, I now can help someone who did the same. And maybe I can understand what caused the tear in the first place. The thing I get questioned about the most. Your hair. No, I've, I've accepted that. I ignore comments, I especially it. from my mum, uh, no. who tells me it's time to grow up. But no, 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 no. no the, the thing I, uh, question, I get questioned about the most from my friends mm-hmm. is toe separators. Ooh. Wait, why? You've been starting to wear them. I, when I, yeah, maybe an hour a day, a couple hours a day when I work, when I'm sitting, um, mm-hmm. I throw on my toe separators and, or I have them sitting on my desk. So if someone comes over to my place, they see, uh, it's a great conversation starter. Toe separators. <laughs> um, so yeah, where does that come in? Is it, is it a helpful tool to yes. use in the, in the, uh, transition? Okay. So first of all, toe separators like toe shoes are a great conversation starter. So if you're someone like me, a barefoot educator, great way to do it. You come out and meet a client for the first time. What are you wearing? Oh, I sell them for $9.99. Just kidding. <laughs> but actually, I do sell them. But you're actually like, you're saying, I'm special. I would like to share my specialness with you. So toe, spreader, toe separators or toe spacers are not a replacement for strengthening your foot, strengthening your arch, playing your toes manually with your fingers, kind of like an active chair. We're going to go back to the example because it's a great example. It's not a replacement for a sedentary lifestyle and eating McDonald's all day. Sorry, McDonald's. But McDonald's in Israel is actually a little bit healthier. Um, but toe separators do two things. Number one, they help your toes to go back into alignment the way they should be. Now, if you're an experienced barefooter, you may not need them as much. 
But if your big toes always constantly pushed in from conventional shoes, it helps them put back put them back the way they are. They increase your blood circulation. They could also increase recovery of the fascia in between because if the toes are always tight together, by spreading them out, they're obviously increasing fascia and help loosening it a bit. But even more so, they actually can help sometimes with, with foot function and gait because once again, it's pushing the big toe in. It's getting my big toe used to moving in a certain manner instead of moving pushed in. But it's all part of the process. So I'll same like you, you know, I'll be working or I'll be watching a TV show and I'll just pop it on my feet. Sometimes I'll wear it while I'm training, but I don't wear it too much while I'm training because I actually, at this point in my barefoot career, I want my feet to be functioning without any assistance. But toe separators are definitely a very helpful tool in anyone transitioning to barefoot. And something I do in my workplace, I spoke about health, not just being, you know, gymming and, and working out and nutrition. Right near my standing desk, I have a mobility bucket. In my mobility bucket, I have toe spaders, a band, lacrosse ball, uh, finger strengtheners, grip thingies. So whenever I'm getting antsy while I'm walking, uh, sorry, while I'm working on the computer, I just kind <coughs> of, you know, pick out something. I'll put the toe spacers on, I'll flex my toe, extend my toe. So I think it's a cool tool to have as part of the greater foot health and health journey. And it's passive. You don't have to work. Just put them on. Kind of like barefoot shoes. Just put them on. Switch them out for your, for your non-barefoot shoes. And it's such an easy thing to do. Um, but even that seems like a, um, sometimes like a chore. Like sometimes I'll look at my toe spaces and, okay, I'll put you on. And every time I do, I'm always happy with myself. And I always, you feel the blood circulate. Absolutely. When you take them off, then you, wow. And then you see how naturally your foot um, is more spread and just feels better. Um, so I'm in that process and slowly, slowly, or hopefully slowly, slowly getting to where I want to be because I played soccer my entire life. I, uh, I've worn cleats most of my life. Um, I've trained in marshmallows my entire life off the field. You should patent that, the marshmallow shoes. <laughs> you should, yeah. Um, but I notice in my feet, and I'm only in the stage now where I'm starting to look at my feet objectively and notice them, and I can see a disbalance. As well, I noticed that on one foot, I can use certain, have control over certain toes. On my other foot, I do not. Um, I can see that I have, uh, I'm forming some sort, or I have formed some sort of a bunion on one side, but the other side I have not. Um, so it's amazing to me how I've spent also my entire life training. I wouldn't say, I won't give myself the credit saying at the highest level, but trying to train as much as possible, focusing on stretching, on mobility, on power, on speed, on strength, coordination, everything I can to be a better athlete, but not thinking about my feet and allowing them to be choked all the time and getting the advice from people to get half a size smaller. Crazy to me. Um, you mentioned that you that you try and walk the walk, not just talk the talk, no pun intended, but walk the walk with your pupils, with your students, with your friends, anyone in your life. Um, what is the ideal day for Sean? So first of all, I feel like Dr. Hooperman here, if you've ever heard of him, he's like, here's <laughs> of course. the ideal day. So I'm actually excited to speak about this topic because I woke up this morning at around 8 a.m. woke up my wife, she's traveling, you know, help her pack a bit. First thing, I usually start my day with some sort of movement. Now, Movement is not only physical movement, like let me go to the gym, let me go to the forest, let me do pull-ups. Movement can be things like breath work. Movement can be things like meditating. My air is moving through my body. But some sort of, let me kickstart my day with something positive. I do struggle at the moment because I get lots of WhatsApps, Facebooks, Instagrams, emails, some of them, good ones. Hey, you just closed the 50,000 shekels contract. You know, like I do find, I'll give you an example. Yeah, yeah. I'm getting interviewed in a podcast in Tel Aviv. So it's sometimes I feel that my dopamine system loves checking my phone first thing in the morning because it's like, oh, what reward are we going to have today? But I am very conscious of I try to keep my phone off in the morning, half an hour, an hour. First, let me feel the real life. What is life? What does the sun feel like today? What does nature feel like today? What does it feel like to sit and have coffee with my wife or something? Or in this case, have coffee at 12 o'clock with my other with my friend. <laughs> so I, with movement. Now that movement sometimes will be some mobility. Sometimes it'll be a gym session. Sometimes it'll be a sauna. And in the sauna, I'll read or journal. Sometimes I'll do breath work as well. Kind of, you know, passive hacking my life. Sometimes I will go for a light walk with Charlie. After that movement session, it's not normally my strenuous gym session. It's usually just something. I'll start my work day. Now, some days 
I start work with clients right away, training athletes in the gym. Some days I have more. Uh, Are most of your sessions one on one? So I would say my time right now, the the practical, the 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 field work is a large percentage in the field. I'm in charge of five national teams in the moment uh, of uh, in the flag football uh, teams of Israel, and I'm also working privately with athletes in the gym. So it's kind of a mix. Right, I don't have I don't have athletes every day. Also, I do enjoy working with people one on one, but it's not most of my day. Most of my day is virtual coaching, online coaching, whatever it be. So, I finish my movement in the morning. Sometimes I'll have a coffee. I would say eight out of ten times I'll have a black coffee. Sometimes I'll do caffeine deload, so I'll sub it out with tea or a decaf coffee instead. Make sure the decaf is Swiss milled, which is the best way to make the beans decaf without putting too much to- 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 toxicity in them. After that, I have the choice. I'm either training my first one, two, or three clients. Or I spend some time writing. I find that my creative brain is the best in the morning. If I push off the creative to later, it's not going to happen. Sit in front of the computer, I could be writing a blog post on barefoot shoes. I could be writing education about strength and conditioning. I could be writing my book. Sometimes I'll journal. Sometimes the journaling will happen in the sauna. I check off light movement. I check off creative energy. I'm done for the day. Not really. I have a lot more. But I'm saying even if I do nothing else that day, I feel successful. That's your foundation. My foundation is... Some sort of light movement, whatever that may be. Usually sauna, ice bath as well. You know, some sort of extreme to cold temperature. Channeling my creative energy. And then in addition to that, I also try to pray, meditate. I do the Jewish form of prayer, but I journal, listen to music while I'm doing it. You know, everyone can pray however they want to see fit. Because I like connecting not just to my physical self, I like connecting to my spiritual self. So some people may not find meaning in the Christian, Jewish, or Arab rituals that they do. But so find something that... It's meaningful for you. If nature is is spiritual and it feels connected to something greater than you, then do it. If singing is, do it. If chanting or playing piano, you know, there's so many stuff that people could uh, do to be spiritual. Then I'll usually work out. Still, still in the morning, strenuous. When I say workout, I'm I'm very active throughout the day. Even now, I'm moving my hands every second. Strenuous workout. You know, hour in the gym or later in the evening, I'll do it on the field. After that, the rest of my day differs a lot based on the day, but I also run both my Instagram accounts, so I'll spend a good 30 to 60 minutes of time. I try to give myself a budget, otherwise it will just swamp you up forever, creating content. Where can people find you on Instagram? So, great question. Instagram, you can find me in two places, the Barefoot Athlete, the dot Barefoot Athlete, and you can find me at the Barefoot Chew Review, which is my other account where I review minimalist footwear and provide a worldwide source for barefoot education. 30 to 60 minutes a day, creating content, stories, engaging, in addition to that, sometime early afternoon, emails, WhatsApps, Facebooks, Instagrams, you know, all the correspondence with clients. I also virtually coach hundreds of clients around the world who are all on my online programs. And part of what I offer, I get to pitch my stuff here, right, is 24-hour line to me. So, like, people are asking me, hey, is my squat good? Hey, this, can you change my program? Blueberries. I just am there for them, whatever it is. I'm, I'm, I'm relatively limited how many clients I take because of this service. Afternoon, once again, I'll play with my dog, Charlie. I'll take him out. I'll usually spend some time reading uh, uh, a nonfiction book. It's, it could be a health book. It could be a biohacking book. It could be a nutrition book. It could be a movement book. I'm trying to educate myself in that manner. Some point later in the day, I'll usually spend some more time writing. And then as I get to the 3, 4 p.m. slot, I train another person or two, or I head to the field where I work with my national teams. That's two, three times a week. Once a week, I work with formal and soldiers as well. But from my... Like my, my, my time to do whatever I want, freelance, freelance work, freelance for myself is between like 10, 11 a.m. to around 3, 4 p.m. when I'm doing whatever needs to be done that day. 4 or 5 p.m. I'm back in structured work mode, which is working with the national teams, fixing online programs, running my workshops, working with formal loan soldiers, corresponding with other people. But every day, no matter what, I make sure to expose myself to extremes that could be heat or cold. I get out in nature and sunshine. I do some form of prayer or spirituality. Sometimes it's not the Jewish way. Sometimes it's just, you know, humming to myself or breathing, meditating. But taking the time. to Taking do the it. time to be mindful. Phones yeah. off unless it's like on light music in the background. But I'm just keeping, you know, being mindful. I journal every day. I try to write every day, which is either like cha- I like to channel my creative energy. That could be juggling. Something that makes my mind work. I train every day and I try to interact with humans every day. And that interaction is not something I have to look for because I train people. So I interact with humans. But for example, my wife's traveling for the next two weeks. I know, me, Sean, I like companionship. So I made updates with good friends of mine. Hey, let's hang out. Let's have dinner at at, the pizza place near me. Oh, we can't say pizza. (laughs) Let's let's hang out. Let's go throw around a Frisbee. I want human interaction and it's very important to me. And people who live in isolation in this day and age where your Amazon fridge automatically orders the food for you and, you know, you work online and you never have to see anybody, you don't realize how, as humans, we, we evolved to be social. You have to see and interact with people, even if you're an introvert. It's part of what our body needs. 
So that's the ideal day for that, Sean. That's the ideal and day for me. And I try yeah. to pass this message on to my athletes that it's not just about, you know, training in the gym. Then It's about movement. It's Can I, let's go back to like half an hour ago when you spoke about the active chair. People who get standing desk treadmills. You know what I'm talking about? Like treadmill yeah, by the desk. Yeah. Although I've never heard of anyone that implementing that successfully long-term in their life. So if imagine you're on a podcast with me on Zoom and I'm on my treadmill. It's perfect because walking and talking are are passive. Yeah. I can be on the phone and talk at the same time. And Sorry, I can be on the phone and walk at the same time. And I can be two hours later. I won't even notice how much I walked. Quick hack. If you're ever taking a phone call, client, friend, walk. Go for a walk. You won't even notice how far you walked. If you're worried about going too far from your home and you have to walk back, so stay on the phone longer with them or do a loop walk. But you can't do deep work while on a treadmill. I've tried it. You can't be typing your next chapter of your book while walking. You can do passive things like listening to a podcast or talking to someone. But the concept is, is that how much low intensity movement can I jam in throughout my day? Breathwork, mobility, walking, ground sitting, barefoot shoes, ground sleeping, things that are hacking my life that don't really require. How much effort do toe spaces really require? Five seconds? 10 seconds, a couple conversations with my coworkers. Like if you can find these small things in your day that are passive, that don't require that much more physical activity, even if it's a journey to optimize it, then do it. That's really the ideal day. What is, uh, don't forget to drink your coffee. I'm conscious that only I'm drinking my coffee. So we'll finish. I don't want you to fall asleep. Um, Do you have any, for yourself, I know you spend a lot of your time coaching athletes Mm. from all different types of sports improving their performance, their abilities. Do you have any goals for yourself? Absolutely. So where are you heading? Tell me. So first of all, Olympics 2028, not as an athlete, as a coach, I'll be there. That's the plan. I'll be taking team Israel's national flag football team there. The flag football will be in the Olympics then. So that's kind of my, will that be the first time? Yes. It will be the first time. Now, obviously it's on me as a coach to produce the best athletes strong as fast as possible, but it's also on them. Where is the Olympics 2028? I'm not sure yet, but I know that the Euros next year, which is going to be a place contender, which means we have to place in a certain place next year, is going to be in Ireland. That's the plan. I'm flying in two, three weeks to Austria with the women's team to compete there. In December, we have Germany coming here for a mutual training camp. I, I train all the teams. So I work with the adult men, the adult women, the U17 women, the U17 men, and the co-ed U15. They're all national teams. And this month, I'll be starting work with the uh, outstanding athletes of the Army who are going to get time off to work with me as well. So it's like, lately, it's been a big chunk of my life working with athletes, but this is what I live for. Yeah. I, I, can, I can sum up my purpose statement. Like, I want people to be healthier, stronger, better, more spiritual, more holistically connected. And working with athletes, these people are at the highest standard of life. Regular people aren't. These people are treating themselves like athletes, so someone like me can really make a very big impact to them because I, I want them to succeed, and they want to succeed. And I feel that from you. Yeah. But about yourself, phys- right. physically, yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So I think it's very important that everyone sets not goals in life, and the goal should be something very, very tangible and specific. So people come to me, regular person, not athlete type, and they say, I want to lose weight. Or I want to get stronger. Those are very vague. I call these vanilla goals. If you like vanilla ice cream better than chocolate, I apologize. So we have marshmallow, this podcast, and now we're on to vanilla. We should really go to Golda. What's it called? Not Golda. Golda? Is Golda. it the ice cream store? We should go to Golda <laughs> yeah. after get some good ice cream. Maybe a cinnamon flavor. I'm a cinnamon guy. Vanilla goals. I want to lose weight. I want to get strong. I want to get fast. I want my pain to go away. Chocolate goals. I want to be able to achieve a pull-up. I want to be able to be fast enough so I can beat their receiver every time they take me in football, right? I want to be able to bench press 100 kilo. My client last week, Sean, I want to be able to drink coffee in a deep squat. Why? Why not? That's a great goal to have. And we did it. Yesterday, I'm sitting with the guy. I have the picture, Google Pixel portrait mode. I'm like, dude, we just spent two months working towards this. Now, imagine he came to me and said, I want to feel better. So in two months' time, after working with him, I say, hey, you feel better? Eh, maybe. I don't know. When you can check off a chocolate goal, it's much easier. So I found... But in life, first of all, I reevaluate and write down my goals in my journal practically every day. So I have my life purpose and I journal, am I tapping into this life purpose? So even if yesterday you wrote down X, Y, Z, today you might still write down X, Y, Z. It may be modified. It's like every day is different. But let's say my goal is to help people become better, stronger, faster, and more connected to their holistic self. Am I tapping into my life purpose every day? That's my real goal. 
For example, after spending an hour podcast with you, I feel pretty good about myself. Why? Because I'm able to share my message with the world. And I don't know how many people are going to hear it. It could be 50. It could be 5,000. So it gives me some sort of fulfillment, even though it's a two, three hour journey. That dopamine dies down a bit. Then I go to the field and I train national teams for three and a half hours. Once again, I'm not only working and getting paid for it, which is always nice because we like supporting ourselves, but I'm actually fulfilling my purpose when I work. So all these things are very meaningful and I try to live towards my purpose every day. From a personal aspect, because that was your real question, I try to play competitive sport at least once a week. Competitive sport, not, you know, Olympic level, but ultimate frisbee at a very high level. Uh, flag football at the highest level. Like I'll, I'll scrimmage against my players because I find that if I can play at this level of sports and stay healthy and be, and, and be the fastest and be strong and be supple and be mobile, everything I'm doing in my training is working. So that's kind of like my little test for myself as I get older. Not that I like the term because I'll be the same person when I'm 50. That's the <laughs> plan. Yeah. That's God willing. That's the plan to keep up the activity. I may not be the strongest. I may not be yeah. the fastest, but I'll be healthy, supple, be able to pick my grandkids over Okay, but is that a chocolate goal for you? The chocolate goal for me is to be able to be that role model for my athletes. And when we sprint, I want to be the first one. And when I'm playing sports with them, I want to be decent enough to be able to keep up with elite level athletes. Most Coaches aren't always at the level of their athletes. In fact, most Olympic coaches are retired. I want to be that coach who can compete with them if I wanted to. But is another chocolate goal being 50 and being... So that's that's the lo the ultimate longevity goal. And that's what I say to my clients who are older, 50 years old, 60 years old, maybe used to be gymnasts, but are now just like, you know, doing longevity. I say, your goal when you're 80 years old is that you can hang on the monkey bars with your kid. You can keep run up the hill with them and have no problem. You can toss around a football with them and not worry about injury. You can race them in a sprint and, you know, tie or win. So for any random person who's not an athlete or even athletes, if you look at the long-term goal, the chocolate goal is, can I keep up with the rigors of life and carry my groceries home at the age of 80? Or will I be bound in a wheelchair? When you're an athlete, yes. it's the chocolate goals are pretty much enforced on you because on the weekend, you want to be good enough so the coach picks you to play. Mm. And if he does pick you or she picks you, you want to be your chocolate goals now to perform. And then your if, even if you performed well, your next chocolate goal is to win the game. And even if you won the game, the next chocolate goal is to be good the next session mm. so you can get picked again Correct. for the next game and win the next game, et cetera, et cetera, forever. For you personally, when you face your own personal chocolate goals in life, sorry that I'm adopting this I like uh, it. Use it. Term. Please use it. If you don't, um, if you don't, if you're unsuccessful, in completing or reaching your chocolate goal, uh, how do you deal with that? So that's interesting. So yesterday I had on my podcast, one of my athletes, and we spoke about being vulnerable as an athlete, how it's okay to channel your emotions and be down and be sad and not feel accomplished. So I would think that a lot of my life, I'm on sort of a high, not a, a hallucinogenic based high, but a life high. I'm killing, I love life. There's no reason not to other than driving for an hour, but I love meeting people. I love being on podcasts. I love training people. I love being in the ice bath. I love doing workshops. So I'm basically living my life purpose constantly. But for every high, especially in my personality type, it's also going to be a down. So it used to be whenever I was down, oh, I'm a failure. I didn't, I didn't hit that chocolate goal today. I only hit the cinnamon roll goal. And in the past year or two, as I've matured, Maybe Corona changed things. Maybe oh, now we're gonna get uh, ha now we're gonna get tagged for that. Maybe <laughs> maybe being barefoot changed things. Maybe I just matured. I realized that emotional work is equally important. So if you have an unpleasant interaction with a colleague or a head coach, you just struggle to hit the PR on the bench press for hundred kilo emotionally. So after that interaction, I say to myself, I journal about it. Okay, you asked how I handle it. I journal it. How did I, and I speak to my wife about it. How did I handle that interaction? It made me feel a little bit bad. Why did it make me feel bad? What about them is triggering me? Why am I getting triggered by this interaction? And then I get brownie points. Then I added some chocolate syrup to my vanilla because I learned something from the situation. And then in five years time, I'm dealing with not a colleague, but a guy who I'm trying to close the $10 million deal with or create a nonprofit with, whatever it is. I know how to handle people better. So you're not always going to chocolate fire your goals. You're not always going to hit the chocolate on the cherry on top. But when you don't, take that as learning experience and understand how I can improve so either I can hit the chocolate better or I can be more emotionally prepped to deal with this. Because we're human beings. You and me are emotional. We're not just statues who are out there to crush the world. We're out there to deal with the world and feel, feel our feelings. And that is a very important point that we didn't really touch on yet. I think it, it might be the most important point. Uh, tell me before we finish up, because I'm, I'm curious, uh, besides, again, always being active on a day, 
every day pretty much throughout the day as you are um in addition to competing in all these different sports with your athletes without your athletes at a high level to challenge yourself uh, what other s- specific training sessions do you do for yourself mm. to challenge yourself physically when you're alone Great I- question. if you have if that happens so i have yeah that so i found that Practically all my hobbies in the past years are movement related. I slackline, I frisbee, I football, I mobility, acro yoga. A few months ago, I took up juggling. I had the goal by my birthday to hit juggling on a slackline. So I spent like two weeks learning how to juggle from zero. I had no prior background, then I got to it. I'm very, very motivated when I have a chocolate, cho- double, triple chocolate goal. Around a year ago, I looked at all my hobbies and I said, I want something new. So I was thinking of taking up fencing, tried it a little bit. I was thinking of taking up a new sport and I said, hold up. Your career is in the sports and movement world. If you move again, you're, is it a true fulfilling hobby if it's just another sport? So I took up singing. And singing was the missing link for me because singing for me, first of all, it's breath work. Controlling your diaphragm, understanding how to tap into it. It's very, very spiritual. Singing is inherently the language of the soul. And you're tapping into, you know, death, especially if you're singing Jewish music. But I finally found an outlet that I can work towards to and practice and warm up my voice, practice on my own and practice with my coach that had nothing to do with my work. Not the gym, not the field, could be done anywhere. It doesn't require a lot of equipment. And I discovered that I have a pretty good voice. Does one's voice improve over time? Oh, absolutely. So first of all, uh, not to flatter myself, but my coach should tell me like, whoa, you, you know, this guy has a good voice. I, I, I didn't know how to channel it properly. I learned how to use my diaphragm. Like I learned how to really um, open up my diaphragm to sing. I learned how to warm up my voice. Apparently similar to training where we spend 30, uh, 10 to 30 minutes warming up. 30 to 60 minutes is if you want to perform, you, so you have to warm up. And I discovered that I have a very, very uh, voice that's very like operatic, kind of like Andre Bocelli, like a tenor. Okay, so I can really belt out the notes as I do it. And I, I started um, singing a little bit, of, especially after the high holidays of Judaism. I started doing a little cantoral stuff. And I'm like, this is something I love, I'm passionate about, and it has nothing to do with work. So we're not even going to chocolate. We're going to call it strawberry cheesecake flavor. And it's something that I like doing. And that's like another thing that I can do in my life meditative, soul, spiritual kind of taps off all the thing. And I encourage everyone out there, even athletes, to find a hobby that has nothing to do with your workplace or your sport so you can have like a life that for yourself. Be selfish. Be yourself with that one. I love that you try new things. Um, again, I love your prism of thought. It makes me think, it makes me challenge myself because we get stuck in certain ways. And I think people get lost in their in what they think they already know, what they think they've already discovered when they were kids, when they were teenagers, when they were young adults, when they're all adults, when they have kids. They think that they know because they know, but they might not know. Um, so thank you for challenging me. Uh, thank you for being here today. And next time we have you on, I hope we'll get you to sing. If that's absolutely. okay with you. I have to warm up my voice first, but absolutely. <laughs> thank you, Sean. Thank you so much for having me on the show. I really, I'm so grateful that you brought me out here and looking forward to the next time. Thank you very much.